Hi, everybody. Hello, hello. Good morning, if you're here in the UK, and welcome to the So You... <laughs> I was going to say, So You Think You Can Dance. <laughs> so You Want to Work in the Arts session webinar. Um, this is our comedy rep webinar, um, comedy writing. My name is Max Percy. I'm a theatre maker. Um, pronouns are he, him. I'm half... Uh, I'm mixed race, I'm half English, half Filipino. I've got a white t-shirt on. I've got glasses on. There's a picture of a map behind me and it's like kind of a, a cream wall. Um, and we have two mighty storytellers here with us. Um, one is Rachel Mars and Melindy Kindrachuk. Um, yeah, if you want to just introduce yourselves. <laughs> Melindy, go for it. Yeah. Okay, hey guys. <laughs> I'm Melindy. I am a writer of all sorts, comedy, screenwriting, video games, not a cool one. I'm also a tarot reader and astrologer. And yes, I like Max, I'm half Filipino. And yeah, I moved to the UK a couple years ago to pursue my dreams and all that. And yeah, just starting out in my career. So I think my perspective will be somebody that's like... Um, kind of newer to the, or like newer to the industry and is navigating it in the current time, which is, yeah, unique, unique Just times. To add to that, yeah, you've, um, so you graduated with an MA in screenwriting from the London Film School. Uh, mm -hmm. You've also hosted the Hot Clown, co-hosted yeah. the Hot Clown series, a comedy variety show aimed at exploring nuances and humor of youth culture through the perspective of a Gen Z female comedian. Uh, you're currently a contributor for the Reductress, an online satire publication, which we'll talk about later. Um, and you've recently won a female comedy writers initiative hosted by the UK TV comedy 5050 and had a treatment for your comedy TV, TV series. Oh my God, that was a way better introduction than the one I just gave <laughs> myself. We're finding our feet. Um, and um, yeah, Rachel, um, I mean, I can introduce you. I've, I've got... I've got my notes. <laughs> um, so yeah, Rachel is a performance maker and a writer with a background in theater, live art and comedy. Um, Rachel's work wrestles with female Jewish and queer identities and their intersection. And your work is text-based, uh, it's sharp, witty, observational and sense of popular culture. Um, Rachel is a fellow at Birkbeck Center of Contemporary Theater and have taught workshops all over the world and um you're a contributor for pause for thought on bbc radio three um you've won two awards which we'll talk about later but um yes um thanks about right yeah, yeah. i'm coming to you from holloway road in north london i think there'll still be people shouting about england coming home through the windows which we maybe won't talk about um i am a off-white lady, I'm Jewish, I have dark curly hair, I've got glasses on and I'm sitting in my studio, which uh, on this side of one one side of me, there's every show I've ever made in boxes um, and a, a very attractive yellow bin on this side. But um, yeah, I, I've been in the industry for a while, but in the past, in this bit, this last bit, I've had to like pivot um, more towards writing rather than writing and performing. So I've, I was working more on telly and um, more like traditional, you know, scripts that look like scripts for plays. Whereas before my work 
ended up with a script that didn't look like a script in the first place. So it's been, yeah, it's been a, a curious period. Mm, yeah, definitely for all of us. It'd be interesting to, yeah, definitely talk about that transition and how you've, you've made that, tr because us theatre people, we have this idea of film um, and film writing. Uh, well, the film people that I, the people in theatre that have made that transition to film, there's almost, um, like we're quite afraid of words or putting lots of words in because it's a visual medium. Um, and I guess to, you know, jump into there, uh, is, is that true? Can you debunk that myth? Uh, how important is our words within a film script, um, Melindy, and, you know, some of the things that you've learned on your MA? I think... Um, Sorry, I'm going to Yeah, yeah. Um, so the thing with the kind of writing like for TV or film is that, you, when you're giving it to somebody, when you're sending it out, they only have the script to go on. They don't know who's going to be, well, they might, but they won't always know who's going to be acting it, how they're going to be acting it, how the lines are going to be delivered, how it's going to be performed. So you do have to be really precise with your words and you have to be precise with the directions because a lot of comedy is physical as well. So that's also something you have to translate into the script, like make sure that everything is super, super it makes sense. They can see it in their mind because the script is all that they have to go on. Um, so words are really important. You have to choose your words so important, like so precisely. And that can be difficult if you're used to kind of workshopping in a different way where it's kind of flows naturally and you, you act it out as you're going. So yes, very, very, very important. And also, it's also kind of about, about making the script itself funny, like reading the script and the way that you're talking it also has to be a little bit humorous because that's just, it's, it's, it is harder to convey it when it's just the words on the page, um, but it's definitely possible. You just have to be like super, super precise with taking what's, what can be so physical and translating that to the written word, yeah. And, um... That question's gone out of my head. <laughs> um, and how do you get into film and comedy? Because, I mean, speaking to you, I know that there's the more kind of, it's very competitive. I mean, all art, mm. the art is extremely competitive. And, um, you know, I know that you've been applying, you've been applying for different schemes that launch, you know, young scriptwriters' careers and things. Um, but then there's also that kind of, you know what, I'm just going to make it myself um, attitude. Um, yeah, how has that worked? Oh my goodness, I've been doing, I have my feet in all of the buckets. That's not, I don't know that that's what you're supposed to say. But toe in all the, hand in all the baskets, hand in all the baskets, where it's like, you kind of have to do everything. At first, because I was seeing a lot of comedians come up on Twitter. I was seeing a lot of people get TV deals through Twitter. And I tried to do Twitter, but it wasn't really for me. Like, because if you're going to go the Twitter route, the social media route, which is how a lot of comedians get big, um, you do have to kind of craft this sort of online persona. And speaking to some of my other friends who are also really like big into Twitter and, you know, write tweets with the purpose of it going viral or like getting a lot of likes and like write these, you know, things like that. You, you're own personality can kind of blend with that Twitter personality and it can get a little bit confusing because you're really having to sell yourself as a character if you go that Twitter route. So for me, I don't know, I didn't really vibe with that, but that if you're somebody that's really good at social media or you're good at Twitter, you're good at writing these little short things, 
and creating a persona for yourself, that is definitely, definitely a great route. Like I've seen so many comedians come up and get TV deals, show deals, all sorts of things just through Twitter and social media, uh, TikTok even. Um, the other route would be, yeah, applying to schemes, which is what I have been doing. And that's how I got my first treatment commission for UK TV for their channel, Dave. But the thing is with that, it's like you have thousands of people, quite literally thousands of people applying. So it really is kind of a crapshoot. You don't know if they're going to like your idea. You don't know if they're going to accept it. You really don't know. I would say do that anyways, because, you know, always cast out a wide net and just try and see if something is going to work out. The second thing that I also um, did pre-pandemic was um, me and some of my friends, we put on our own comedy show. And I would say that this is probably the best uh, option if you're starting out in comedy writing because it's really low stakes. Um, all you have to do is you go to a venue, you rent the venue and you say, I'd like to do a comedy show, a couple hours on this date, you pay the deposit and then through ticket sales, you can make up that deposit and you just grab a bunch of your friends, do stand up, write some sketches, do something funny, have all your friends and family come, you'll make up that deposit and ticket sales and then boom, you have this show. And it's so, and doing it yourself, that route is so much, it, you have so much more power because you're not waiting for somebody else to say, okay, I love you, let's do it. Or I love your project, let's do it. You have so much power because you're doing it yourself. And especially if you film that, you can have that um, for your portfolio, you can have that material and you don't have to wait for somebody to tell you you're good enough now you can just do it and especially if you do with a bunch of friends or a bunch of people um, that you work with and have your family and friends come it can be a really really fun event so yeah those are kind of the three th those are kind of the routes that you can take um, I definitely if you're starting out I definitely definitely recommend um, just taking it into your own hands like definitely apply for you know all of the schemes that you can but there's there is a point where you need to take it into your own hands because you waste a lot of time waiting for people to tell you yes, rather than you just telling yourself yes. And uh, thanks so much. And, and Rachel, is uh, what was your experience like as well? What are your earliest memories of, 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 of comedy and storytelling? So yeah, just to back up um, uh, what Melinda was saying, in order to get in, I just, there's this like DIY culture in, that definitely exists in British performance. It's, it's the kind of cuspy edges of performance that like, uh, it's kind of theater that's like also having sex with like live art and comedy and these edges and that no one is waiting for anyone to tell them to do that. <laughs> you are you are doing it yourself. You're like putting, getting stuff, uh, either doing it yourself or like busting your way into scratch nights. And, and that was definitely my experience of just like, but just do it yourself uh, because there's so many gatekeepers and um, their taste isn't always great. Some mm. of their taste is good and some of them isn't your taste. So why are you waiting for them? Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's definitely true for like the like live theater side of anything. I mean, I'm not like a, I wouldn't call myself a comedian. I use comedy a lot, but um, yeah. And also then you're gonna learn in front of an audience. If you wait, someone say, yes, you're not learning in front of an audience. And that's like where most material I think gets honed. Um, that wasn't quite your question. <laughs> um, but like earliest memories of theatre I mean I was quite lucky I was taken to see I mean I watched a lot of comedy growing up um, telly comedy so like you know I'm old so French and Saunders and the young ones and to an extent Monty Python um, Victoria Wood like I was looking even then I was looking for like women in 
Judy and Clary queer people, even though I didn't know that that's what I was looking for. So I was watching stuff on telly and then I was lucky to be taken to the theatre as a child. Um, so, you know, panto, uh, all sorts. Um, and yeah, a lot, I mean, we saw a lot of stuff. Schools still had the budget then to take <laughs> protectorate to the social, which they don't have now. Um, but you know, section 28 was still there, so I couldn't see any gay people. So swings and roundabouts. Um, but it was, yeah, I think, I mean, the thing I always say is see a lot. And I know that's difficult with pandemic, but there's all sorts of online stuff you can watch and, you know, and read, read pilot scripts. There are hundreds and hundreds of that out there. You just need to like search the, the script that you, you want to see and you'll find it online. Um, so yeah, immerse yourself in the industry that you want to be in. Do you have any um, places that you know that you can get these pilot scripts? Or? I literally just like Google them. So. They'll, they'll just be there. Yeah. <laughs> there are like the BBC Writers Room has a has a opportunity has a page which has the BBC ones. But the other day I was like, oh, I wonder if I can read the Broad City pilot. Mm. Yes, mm. is the answer. Just yeah. Google. <laughs> um, the other good place for telly stuff is Deadline, which is um, they released. What do they have the other week? Oh, the May, uh, I May Destroy You. A couple of episodes of that. So Deadline. Deadline. Yeah, you can put it in the chat. Um, so uh yeah there is a lot of there are a lot of resources out there and for both of you as well we'll go to melinda first how, how does your identity influence your work i mean your identity is you in this day and age where we're being replaced by robots i was saying to my kind of my my relative like a robot will never replace me there is no <laughs> you i do but maybe you know we'll be surprised so how, how does it influence your work i guess your identity is everything because it's your point of view it's what you're how you're seeing the world and how you see the world that's your comedy so uh, yeah definitely and I don't know Filipinos are hilarious I love Filipinos I'm always gonna you know have that little quirky you know Filipino energy in it but yeah I, I would say even not just going so far as making all of your comedy about your identity because you can do that you know it can be easy to fall into the trap of let's say, oh, I'm super tall. So all of my jokes are going to be about being super tall. Or, you know, it's easy to make that kind of a shtick, but it is your point of view. It is your unique individual point of view. And comedy is kind of about sharing your take. So that just kind of naturally factors into to your voice, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. You, you, have, you need to have something to say. <laughs> and you need to know like what position you're coming from and who the target is if there is a you know if there's a target and is that a reasonable target for you to take aim at um so I think like knowing your own position your own politics um is like it's important and you might only find that out by making um and making mistakes and being like oh actually that was you know that was a bit harsh or that was lazy or whatever but um I think I mean, I grew up in like a Jewish family that was all, it was just storytelling all the time, jokes all the time, that kind of comedic rhythm all the time. So that definitely plays out in the way that I write and the way that I talk now. And that'll be true for like, yeah, wherever you grew up, there'll be some kind of rhythm, like a speech rhythm that feels like home to you. Um, and it's kind of interesting to try and figure out what that is for each person. And um, you, you, you both, I, mean, I imagine, would have very different processes, but how do you go about testing out your material when you're developing it? Because I think I mentioned before in, in, in the description of this webinar, 
and I'm writing a one-man show at the minute, and it, it is a very lonely process. And how, how do you how do you how do you test out your own work and material? You annoy Rachel, your do you friends. Wanna... You annoy your friends with it. <laughs> I mean, so read it out to yourself. Mm, mm. Read it out loud is the first thing, and understand like the rhythms of it. If something makes you laugh, good. It's better than it not making you laugh. So really, if you're trying to entertain yourself in the first place, that's a good place to start. Mm. Um, but then there are like, yeah, get a group of mates together. And in, I mean, in, in normal circumstances, you would maybe scratch it at a scratch night um, or that sort of thing. And then you'd learn in front of lots of people. At the, at the moment, I guess, do this with a couple of, you know, people that, whose opinion you trust um, and do some swap skis. Like I have a lot of colleagues and we constantly swapping scripts and giving it, giving notes back. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of thing. It's, I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, you generally know when you've hit on something super funny, mm. uh, but then <laughs> you might, it might be their personal taste. So it might hit other people and they just don't, they just don't get it. Um, it's risky. Um, like the normal comic circuit is you do your five minutes and you take that around the country and like comedy clubs. Um, and then you go up to 10 minutes and you're constantly testing and, you know, comedians who like, that doesn't work. People do that on stage all the time. Yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So then you're working up to your Edinburgh hour. Um, but at, at the moment, yeah, you have to find sort of ways around it. But not staying in your own, you're not going to do it on your own. People have to come at some point. Yeah. How do you test out material, Melendi? Yeah, with friends, same thing. Like if if you're telling it to your friends and all of you're dying laughing, like it's a great sign. If they're just like, what? <laughs> then you just quietly cross it out of your notebook and move on. <laughs> so, but it's also like, if you think it's funny and if it genuinely makes you laugh, like you at the end of the day, it's like you your opinion, you know, you need to be able to trust yourself. Mm. yeah and yeah trust yourself and know when when you should listen to yourself and you know not other people yeah and, and what stories is it that you guys choose to tell or what I, I guess that's a really broad question but um yeah um I think it depends on project to project I'm normally like normally things that make me quite angry in my theatre work like think like things that piss me off Mm -hmm. uh, politically or stories that I don't see told or rep like experience that I'm just like oh I mean it's always women because I'm like I'm not writing men men can write men mm -hmm. that's fine <laughs> um so yeah things I'm kind of listing out for um stuff from history that hasn't been told or I mean it comes from anything like lots of lots of like psychology reading or sociology reading about how it's normally about people like how people are with people um and the ways that we're affected by the ways that we're government governmented that's not a word uh, governed um so yeah all sorts of all sorts of starting points and a sort of queerness of form i'd say so this is where it's sticky for me right trying to move as a as a theater person into telly because um the pilot script that I had written was like quite queer in form. Like it was doing, it was hitting the story points, but there was definite weirdness in it. And that's trickier to get through as a first script, I think. 
I think like you can get there. Um, but the, what I'm experiencing is this, is a kind of more rigidness because it's more about money in telly. There's more money sloshing about and it has to be like more successful. You know, they're talking about audience, huge audience numbers. Um, so that's for me is feeling a bit sticky at the moment because I'm like, ah, but I like this, like the weirdness of the form is part of the whole, that's part of the politics. Um, it's not just repeating like sort of Western straight white male storytelling. Um, but that's tricky. I mean, you'll see it. You see it in people that have a bit more power and have been doing it a bit longer. Their first projects maybe looked a bit more um, orthodox and then they're able to like wrestle the control back and have their own means of production and do what the hell they like. It's a long answer. Mm. And so how, how important has this idea of dramaturgy been when, when, when creating your film script at the minute, but also your, your previous pieces. Do you work with a dramaturg? Me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, not, I've not, uh, hmm. I've got a dramaturg attached to um, uh, um, the most recent sort of performance project that may or may never happen because it's very, very visual mm. and I'm very comfortable in language, but less so in pictures. Mm. So she's kind of helping me with that. Um, I've worked in duos where we're sort of, that's part of the duo work is the kind of be dramaturging as we go along. Mm. Um, and I dramaturg for other people. Mm. So mm. like, but that, it, it is hard to do it on your own work because you have to step back and look at structure. Yeah. Um, I think it's like, if you can find a good dramaturg or a script editor, whatever you want to call it, depending on the industry, like mm. it is really helpful to have someone who's checking in on form, who's mm. like, is this the right form to be telling this? And I don't necessarily just mean is it a short or is it, you know, a feature? Or it's kind of like, where are the audience? Why are the audience there? Um, because there's all the stuff that we receive that is immovable, but it's not, it's, it's just British, in this case, like British theatre tradition that tells us why things need to be like they are. Um, so yeah, for me, it's like having a dramaturg who's helping with hitting story points or hitting feeling points, but also really needling in terms of, can you be bolder? Can you make different decisions? Like is the way you're telling this as important as what you're saying. Interesting. Um, we'll, we're going to take a look at your piece, Roller, that was performed in 2017. Um, I think so. I think I'm sharing my screen now.
you, you said that you, you're less comfortable working with pictures, but I can see in there that there are such strong images in there. Um, but um, so yeah, that's that's mainly so Nat, who is the taller person that I'm often talking to, um, is a designer. So wow. so when we work together, I'm more on like we're both on words, and then I'm more on dramaturgy and structure as an additional, and she's more on pictures. So it's a it's a good collaboration in that way. Mm. That looked really awesome. Thanks. It was fun. I mean, that. So this is another thing. I don't know how many people in um, attendees are like wanting to go more into stage stuff. But there's a look. If it ever comes back, let's proceed optimistically, as if anything that ever existed will happen. Um, there is a scheme called the Oxford Samuel Beckett Theatre Prize, um, which is at the Barbican. Which is um, yeah. It's just, they give you the space. They give you thirty-five grand. It's not enough if you're trying to make a show for nine women, but there we are. Um, but like there are these, as Belinda was saying, there's, there's these like constant theatre schemes. Like my other, my other my, that's, that's our final hearts going on in the background. That must be on another show. <laughs> Sorry, I was No, like, you're fine. Where is that coming from? Yeah, like, that's, oh that's the next, that's another trailer. I was like, my um, <laughs> You're fine. You kind of just skip to the next show. Sorry, what were you saying? Um, no, I was just saying that there are schemes, you know, there are, the Oxford Samuel Beckett is, is designed to give sort of, early career or mid-career-ish theatre makers a step up in terms of like, here's the Barbican. And the main thing about that for us was the tech. You, there is so much tech there and so much support in mm. terms of like pictures and just being bigger, bigger stages, bigger, bigger images. That's the biggest cast we've ever worked with. Mm. So um, yeah, just as Melinda was saying, like looking out, yes, make your own stuff. Eventually you probably will have to apply for stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you've got, if you've been doing your own stuff by then, you walk into that room with a kind of give no shit that's cheap because you're like I've done this do you want my work it's good and that's quite disarming for people um so yeah we we won that award because we didn't care we were like we're interested in roller derby we're interested in lots of women we're interested in violence uh do you want it um and like that's it is it takes time to instead of like please instead of going in, but that takes time. I didn't have that at the beginning. I was like, please, for a little while. And then you do it long yeah. enough and you're like, do you want it? I don't care. <laughs> so yeah. it's a shift. No, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, the Barbican, yeah, again, this award really prestigious. Um, and you worked with the Brighton Rockers roller derby team. What was it like working with, I guess I, wouldn't, I, I was gonna say, you know, a non-performance kind of, but they, they are performative but no yeah right. they're performative I mean is it, I don't know if any of you guys have seen roller derby or it is it's a sport but it's it, it has its history in something that became quite like sticky and funky for a while um but yeah we just went and basically again it was a formal thing it was talking to them about how a roller derby match bout they're called works what are the it's like how is it divided in time into these little sections can that be useful to pull over drag into theatre into these like three minute sections um how does it move clockwise anti-clockwise what does that mean for where the punters are um, so we pulled out all the seats and put them all the way around because that's where they are so it's like it's looking at your sort of base starting materials and seeing what you can pull over into into theatre um and yeah and a couple of those people are non you know non-performers and it just means that you have to make sure that they feel comfortable about being you know being there and speaking and uh because they're, they're normally just working with their bodies which is fine but like how do they feel about 
speaking their own experiences and making sure you're just giving them enough time to, to do that. And there was like, uh, Superior was 10 when we did that show and the oldest person was in their 80s. So it was a super broad range and you just have to meet people where they are basically. I'm aware that I've talked a lot. And um, when working with Nat, Tarab, you, you've written, you've co-wrote these plays together, Ladies Not For Talking Like an Egyptian and 27 Ways I Will Never Fuck My Mother. Yeah. Um, how has it been working with the designer when, when is she a part of the writing process as well? And how does, how, how does getting a designer in so early affect the work um, later on in its kind of, what are the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's always, we co-write, but she's always thinking, I'm always thinking like, how will this material that we're generating in this rehearsal room eventually fit into an hour show? She's thinking, what costumes are we wearing? <laughs> like, uh, and so it just means you've got both of those tracks running at the same time. And I think that's, you know, I think if you're bringing in, when you bring in your, your light, your stage design, your sound design, uh, early as possible. People don't want to just, as my mate who's a lighting designer, be brought in at the last minute to throw lights on your shit art, is what she, she calls it. She's like, people want that. It's collaborative. And if you could be there from the beginning and you can afford to have everyone there from the beginning, properly paid, you're going to get a, a more cohesive piece and everyone's going to feel more invested. So I would say bring people in early, early if you can. Mm. And uh, you, you mentioned in, in your bio, there's... Um... This is quite interesting. So you, you said that you leave enough space for audiences to insert their own experiences. Um, I know that as, as, as my experience as a, as a dancer and movement maker, then that, that leaves, I mean, there's lots of space for people to interpret. So in comedy with things quite specific with using words and situations, where, where do you create those spaces? I think in between the gags. Mm. <laughs> so like, because I'm not, because I'm not making I think it's different if you're making a, a solo comedy hour. It is changing, I suppose. Like you do have to, as, as Belinda said, you have to be specific. Otherwise it just doesn't, nothing lands. But you do have the arc of the hour to play with. And so you can move people over the arc of the hour and make them work. It's fine to alienate people a bit and make them do some work. You can't do that in the first five minutes because people will check out and be pissed off with you. But as you earn their trust by making them laugh in the first five, 10 minutes, if this is what you want to do, if you just want laughs, fine, just do that. But if you want to do something else, then if you, if you earn people's trust in the first five minutes, you can push, I mean, look at Nanette, right? The, um, which was such a massive hit, the Hannah Gadsby show. That's, doing, that's taking comedy and it's doing something else with it. Um, and she is leaving gaps for you. Do the work. I don't like being spoon fed stuff as an audience. So I'm not going to make that for people. Um, but like, you know, it's pure comedy stuff. James Acaster, people like that, that are, are making weirder things. They are, they're, they're leaving gaps and making you lean in and go, I don't understand this bit. And it's just the balance of keeping people on side, making them lean in and invest more rather than making them alienated by not understanding. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing sort of dance, I think. Mm. Seems like you use comedy to trick people to think deeper. Yeah, in a way, it's manipulative. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it makes people feel great. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, and what you're, when you're less so when you're in telly, because people are watching on their own, but when you've got a group of people watching something, what you're trying to get them to do is um, breathe at the same time. Mm, mm. 
as an audience. So sometimes you'll go and see a show and you're like, I feel weird about this and I don't know why. And it's because the, the performers aren't breathing and you're not breathing as an audience member. And it makes you feel weird. If you're in a, that's why singing together is so great because you're all doing the same breath pattern. You feel this like magic togetherness. But if you can get an audience breathing together, then something magic happens. And that's what comedy does because it, it holds people in suspense they're breathing in and then you have your punchline and everyone laughs at the same time and you keep doing that over an hour and by the end people feel brilliant it's manipulative but it's human i'm going to stop talking now that's fascinating no 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 that's that's <laughs> fascinating so melindy um you've contributed for the reductress um some of its titles had me creasing um so you've written for articles um in the reductress how i how I sleep at night, knowing my boyfriend has a bigger ass than me, absolutely gloating about owning a, a bidet, and skin decides to be flawless now of all times. So, where have you like pulled these from? And you know, um, I guess as 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 you're writing for articles now, as well as your own medium within within film, and uh, you know how how you manage and balance these two two gigs. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just looking for any outlet you can to just create. I think that's the, the most important thing about this stuff is like just there's so many different avenues and it and it's totally possible to do all of them. But in terms of um, yeah, writing for Rejectress, honestly, I look at I go to like the Daily Mail or I go to Cosmopolitan and I look at like their real headlines and then I see like, how can I make that like satire or funny? Because some of the headlines are like, they look satirical, like the, the femme male, the daily mail for women, whatever it's called, hilarious. So much good material there. And that's what I like about writing for Reductress is like, it's literally taking like those classic, like Cosmo and daily mail, like female, um, articles and making them satire like it's hilarious um, I definitely recommend um, looking into writing satire headlines or satire for satire publications because it gets you your brain kind of trained to look at things that are happening in the world and turn it into satire and make it funny because there's so much like dumb shit that's happening like with like politics and just everything like there's so much stuff that's just like what the hell and turning that into sat satire and making that funny is um it's a it's a really good skill to have um yeah just being able to look at the world with a bit of a critical eye yeah and 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 because your mediums the ones that you work with and and, and uh, mostly uh film and you know uh um, articles online um, how do you because there isn't that audience response um it, what do you have to find almost like a universality in this, this in yeah produce and you know because people are watching it from everywhere can watch it from everywhere with theater it's these people and you know you would imagine they all live in the area so how do you mm. yeah it is a bit of a leap of faith and sometimes you know things don't articles or things don't land the way that you thought that they would. And that's why I think it's so important to be able to trust yourself with knowing, you know, what you think is funny or what you think isn't because um, without having like the audience's laughter to rely on, you just have yourself. So um, yeah, carving out, you know, that, that faith in yourself. Yeah. It's important. You work with the co-writer as well. Um, how yeah. 
I love writing with other people. It's literally the best. It's the best because the whole time it doesn't even feel like work because you're just laughing your asses off the entire time. Like it's, it's the best. The thing is, if you're writing with somebody where you're not on the same wavelength or you're scared to tell the other person, look, I don't think this is funny. I don't think this is good. Or if somebody would say that to you, you would be offended or be upset that's when it can kind of get a little bit tricky. So it's really, if you're going to write with a partner, it's really important that you're both able to give criticism and not take it personally and not get offended. And at the same time, just have fun really and make each other laugh. And and how do you tread that line between what is like risky and, and, and inappropriate or, or, you know, what's inappropriate and what's, you know, what's just funny. And then what's, you know, what's just, it doesn't it's it's i mean there's there's comedy just for yeah anyway it's that other kind of the comedy that i don't particularly oh yeah yeah i mean the thing is at the end of the day comedy is supposed to make people feel good like you can roast people you know you can do a little a few jabs here and there but at the end of the day like it's supposed to be fun so if your comedy is relying on making a certain group of people feel bad it's not really comedy I don't know like it's not really what are you doing you know it's it's cheap I think it's cheap yeah yeah so I just it's just asking yourself is this joke at the expense of somebody else's like well-being or like yeah do you have anything to add to that Rachel yeah completely there's I want to recommend it slightly watching it illegally at the moment because it's not here um Melinda do you know this show Hacks Oh. oh my god so good so um, okay I'll look at it basically it's it's a, a bit, really it's a two-hander it's um but it's based sort of the main character is kind of semi-based on Joan Rivers so like older female comedian that's been through it and then she's paired blah 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 paired with a younger writer so it's like a generational thing but and the younger comic is like oh you know she got cancelled because she crossed the line and the older comic mm. is just like there is no line. <laughs> There's just clever or not clever, yeah, funny yeah. or not funny. So yeah. I think exactly as you say, cheap. When it's cheap, it's you can make jokes about anything. You just have to be clever enough mm. <laughs> and check in with yourself about the target. So yes, that's what I would say. But yeah, I would recommend Hacks if you're interested in comedy. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. Heidi Carmichael has watched the first season three times. <laughs> Very good. And, you, and the pilot's available to read online. It's very good. Definitely. Perfect. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and uh, Melindy, just to stay with you for a, a bit longer, um, how has uh, film school helped you on your journey? I think it's just helped me to really write economically and also to know what people are looking for. Because the thing is with writing for TV, it's like they're looking for something very, very specific and you need to be, and you need to know, you need to know how to hit it basically, if you're going to go into TV writing. And that's why TV is difficult because it's like, you do feel to some extent you're trying to fit a mold. Uh, So for example, I had the show that I was trying to get through with Dave. It didn't get through basically. And this, and this is why basically they told us it was about two girls who are trying to be famous comedians, best friends trying to be famous comedians, but they're really, really bad at comedy. Basically they told us that um, they didn't want to take it forward because, um, they don't want to do any shows about show business or entertainment or stuff like that because that's not relatable to the to the vast majority of people particularly dave is a male skewing channel 
So having these two girls, you know, trying to be comedians, it just was, it was a little bit pushing the boundary for them. So that's the thing. It's like, you could have this really brilliant idea, but if it's not right for the channel, if, if it's, if it's too, you know, out there, it's just not going to work. I mean, streaming services have helped this actually, because with streaming services, it's not because with channels, it's like, it's broadcasting. So you have to appeal to everybody. Like everyone at any moment can turn on the TV and watch the show, but with streaming, because it has, you know, little categories, it's way more niche. So you have a lot more freedom and a lot more flexibility and breathing room. So pitching TV to streaming services could be better if your idea is more quirky or if your idea is more off the wall or out there, or, you know, it's not going to appeal to the typical British or male skewing audience. Streaming services can definitely be helpful, but just have, just going to school taught me how to, how to pitch and how to, you know, kind of frame myself and package myself for these networks and these places. It's not ideal by any means, but it is, if you want to do TV and if you want to go the broadcasting route, even the streaming route, you do kind of have to learn that. And you do have to be aware of that because like Rachel was saying, there's a lot of money in it. So, you know, it's also looking at your idea and thinking, is this going to be commercially viable? Are people go, are a lot of people going to want to watch this? And I think the best way for you to see if your idea is commercially viable is like, would you, if you saw the blurb, the log line on the TV, like, would you, would you click and watch? That's kind of the best way. Like, would you watch it? But um, yeah, if it's, if your stuff is quirkier, it's definitely, definitely harder because, you know, mass, mass appeal is a difficult thing to get right. So I, can you I might have, yeah. Lindy, like with the, with the show that they said no to, mm -hmm. can you think of like other are you going to take it? Can, are you allowed to like take it elsewhere? To yeah, yeah, I can't take it elsewhere. Yeah, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. It also was I was a bit nervous about it because one of the characters was Filipino and like the character is inspired by me and she is doing comedy in secret from her parents who think she's at nursing school. So that there's another thing where I was just like, is this idea too, um, is this too specific? Are people going to relate to it? Um, and actually I was telling this to a group of people, I'm in this mentorship program, I was telling it to a group of people and I was like, I just don't know if I should continue to write Filipino characters because I, I don't know if everyone's going to relate to that, whatever, whatever. And then a bunch of people actually, like a bunch of other people of color, not Filipinos, were like, no, I super relate to this idea. I'm not a Filipino woman going into comedy, but I am, you know, a black man, an Asian man trying to do an artistic career. And there is that spark of something relevant. So I think, and and I was told like, always keep it specific. So even if people say no, or even if people are not interested or it doesn't suit them, don't, don't let that stop you from writing about what you know and who you are, because eventually you will find something, a place, for, a home for that. That's appropriate. I probably wouldn't want my show to be on Dave anyways, you know? I, I wouldn't think the guys want would your like show it. to be on Dave. <laughs> I don't think the guys would like it, like to be honest. I hope you're watching Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and how do you handle rejection Rachel oh badly really badly um I actually there was a tweet that I wrote there was this so there's a thing you can do where every time you get a rejection you put like a fiver in a jar yeah. and then and or you're trying to get and then you take yourself out for dinner or oh. you um or you like uh um try and hit a certain number of rejections a year Fantastic. So, so, but then, but then the flip, I was like feeling That's that. That's such was, a good idea. It's a good That's idea. That's such then, a good idea. But then I was like, 
but then there's a sort of virtueness about like being able to be like, I feel great about my rejection. So then I was, I was just doing a tweet about like, every time I get rejection, I put a fiver in a jar and by fiver, I mean axe and by jar, I mean wall. Because I also think it's fine to be hurt for a little bit. Mm. It's okay, it's shit when someone says no yeah. to you. It's okay to be hurt and then yeah. you move on. You just can't stay in the hurt for too long. But I do think it's fine to feel it. And it's, it's you'll feel that it's unjust or you'll feel whatever. Yeah. And I think it's okay. And, the other and at least you're in the arena. Completely. Like, yeah. Completely. And also yeah. like you might get rejected. I got rejected for a bunch of uh, TV schemes with one with one script and it got me into another one so it's taste mm -hmm. like Melanie was saying mm -hmm. it's taste it's taste it's taste yeah it's taste um the other thing is um I made a whole show about uh, envy and I think that's something else to look out for because I think you need loving colleagues who you can be honest with and there are a limited amount of opportunities and so you're pitted against your friends and that's sometimes mm. shit and so I think to be able to acknowledge I have this phrase with my friend Greg I'm really happy for you. And also I want to shit in your bed because, <laughs> because it's both true. So I think like, yeah, if, you can, yeah. if you can acknowledge that like you're really happy for someone and also it hurts a bit, it's okay. So I think, yeah, I would yeah. encourage that. Yeah, there's a strength in that, definitely. Yeah, and also knowing that somebody else's success doesn't mean you're not going to be no, successful. completely. Yeah. It's not, it's not, there's no less cake. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shout out to Heidi, who's also Filipino. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining, Heidi. Um, yeah, so we're almost at that 10 minute mark. So I, I, I'd like to open up to, for a QA. and a um, I know that Joel has asked a question already. So that's to Rachel and it's going back to the roller derby, uh, the roller show. Um, how did you find asking the roller derby team to vocalize slash be funny, asking movement artists project is something I found can be a definite learning curve. It definitely is. We had we had some, some roller derby people. We also had some dancers mm. who had not were not used to speaking on stage. Um, and we worked with a director um, called Melly Still, who's like, and she just it's about like, a don't ask someone to be funny who's not funny. It will die, and then people will laugh at them not with them, which is unfair. <laughs> um, so it's kind of going, well, what can you do? And let's do more of that. Um, projection, like you are gonna have to be heard. So it is, it's techniques and training and confidence. Um, and um, yeah, I don't think there's any magic formula. It's like doing it again and again and again and learning some vocal techniques if you're not used to, to speaking. Um, and looking at the person and going, okay, what's, what do they do? Let's do more of that rather than trying to make them something that they're, that they're not really. Um, yeah, I've got friends that like, they risk being laughed at. Some people just have funny bones and some people don't. And you can learn to be funnier, but mm. it has to come from you. You can't like put on, you can't just like put someone in a comedy suit and hope for the best. Um, yeah. Right. Um, Noah has a question. Um, so this is for Melindy. Um, has Melindy? Ooh, this is weird. Oh, answered. Okay. Um, has have you um, thought about integrating your comedy with your uh, tarot and astrology passion, um, as it's becoming my, more popular on social media like TikTok? Hey Noah. 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I actually have done some. Um, so I actually did an astrology thing for Reductress, which was like, uh, I'm not going to say it. Oh, I'll just say it. Um, oh, yeah. Man, man doesn't believe in astrology, but thinks orgasm was real. Um, definitely. There's definitely some funny stuff to to delve into with with tarot and astrology. I think just it's one of those things that's like popular in the youth in the youth culture today and that's always something to explore in comedy and that's you know it's always I don't know so I I actually have asked my tarot deck for ideas like I was literally like shuffling being like give me a plot give me a plot please <laughs> but no I actually haven't thought about that much I will though thank you Noah um yeah objective of TikTok um and and I guess uh you know I think it's it's really TikTok for me anyways is quite a timestamp of of COVID for some reason. I mm. think it's the way that we can it really has provided a way that we can interact in the best way that technology can let us, which is through voice and through you know movement and pictures and language and things. So how has how have you found uh, ways in in finding an outlet? through a period of time where all those connections and ties and actually, you know, breathing and laughing together yeah. is, is quite scary to do with people. I definitely, I don't know if you found this guys, but I've definitely found like, I haven't been laughing as much since the pandemic, just cause you're not really around people, you know, you're not in that social situation where, and it's hard to just laugh like by yourself, like, you know, like, you know, it, it it does, it has made a difference, I think, because I think it also has contributed to like this feeling of heaviness that we've had in the pandemic. Like it, the pandemic would be so much funnier if like we could all be with our friends and laugh about it. And I guess that's why TikTok is blown up because, you know, it's a way for us to connect by ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what you think. Oh, also, I, I think Joel also had a question for Rachel in in the, the regular chat. Oh, I've, I've covered that one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think so. Like, depends how funny the people you live with are. If you're stuck with someone who's not funny, that's rough. <laughs> I know like lots of like romantic couples who've been like, man, I found, I might love this person, but I don't like them. <laughs> so like, that's, I think like the humor is like, has kept couples or, you know, like non-romantic pairings of people. It's been quite indicative of like, what relationships you need in your life in this past sort of 18 months and where the resilience is coming from. And if you get resilience from laughing at stuff and you're, you're not finding that at home, that's tricky. Um, I mean, I have like um, Zoom weekly, I'm writing a musical with a friend who we crack each other up. So at least I know that like every week we're gonna be idiots for a couple of hours, like Melanie was saying, and like be funny together. Um, I started reviewing gherkins because that was like a stupid thing to do that made me laugh. So like I have a thing called Pickle Watch, due to do one this week, which is like, you know, anything that's light and stupid and distracting, it's good. I have fear about, not fear, I have, I'm curious about what is gonna be programmed or made in the next year as a result of this. So my fear is that people, Theatres, especially that have no money because they've been decimated, will have to choose uh, the Dave style <laughs> like plays 
in order to appeal to vast audiences. So I do, I have a slight concern about what it's gonna be for what it's produced. Is it, are we going back to a kind of mainstream commercial straight white male? View? Yeah, maybe. Uh, but maybe there's not. no going back. Maybe there's would, no going yeah, back. Yeah, I would like there to be no going back because going back yeah. was shit. It was not a good place. <laughs> well, just because Dave was like trying to do like a female comedian writer initiative. Maybe ah. there's no going back. Yeah, that would be nice. It would be nice if that was true. Is, is the new uh, female writing initiative from Dave? Or well, that was their that was first one. Yeah, that was it. But that was yeah. it. Um, actually, Comedy 5050 is a good um, resource to follow because that's all about addressing the gender imbalance in comedy and they share a lot of schemes. So yeah, that's a great one to look at. Chat. Oh, it's just coming up with the comedy. Um, and education as well you i mean I, I know that melinda you've expressed you know you, that education is and teaching people is a huge part of the things that you want to factor in in your work and and rachel you've seen that you've 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 just finished a joke translation service with uh, with a venue in leeds um you've also uh been to Harvard, Harvard, were you lecturing, talking? I was doing a workshop on the day after Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> Let me tell you, that was not fun for anyone. We just, we, I just scrapped the workshop and we spent three hours ranting because I was like, no one's got any, no one's got any confidence. Um, yeah, Drug Translation Service is, a, is an ongoing project with refugees and asylum seekers mm -hmm. where they tell gags in their home languages and then we translate them and see what we understand and often we don't understand them in translation because gags are so particular to like I'm sure there might be like Filipino gags that if you told me I'd be like I don't get it because I don't understand culturally or politically or historically what's necessary for me to understand in that joke so it's just a way to like unpick uh, experience quite quickly um, but yeah I'll, I'll carry on doing that. And Melinda, what, what do you hope to, I, I guess, through teaching, um, like what excites you the most about it? Uh, like working with women and girls and yeah, because comedy, like it, especially I feel like in this country, maybe I'm wrong, is like kind of guy dominated, male dominated, you know, the whole dry, sarcastic British guy kind of thing. Um, and just getting more more women you know feeling comfortable with performing and doing stand-up I've been to so many stand-up things where it's like me and my friends have been like the only girls there and it is intimidating you know especially because there's a lot of asshole guys in the comedy world that don't think women can be funny da, da, da. so yeah just getting like speaking to more women you know making sure that people have the confidence it's not even just about the it's not about the talent I think it's just about the confidence. Mm. Women are talented and funny. Mm -hmm. It's the confidence I think can be the biggest barrier to jumping in. Right, and, and, and lastly, um, do you have any advice, last, last advice for anybody who is, is wanting to either develop, yeah, to, about comedy writing that any gold bits of gold nuggets that you can impart? Do it. Become a lawyer. <laughs> uh, no. uh, read, watch, watch and read. Yeah. Just watch and read as much as you can. Is what I would say. 
just get really, really well versed in what's out there and then and like understand where your voice sits amongst everyone else's. Mm. I, yeah, definitely, definitely. And also like take notes, like if you're out and walking about and you see something funny or you see something that could be an idea or something that can be made fun of, just write it down in your phone and just start keeping a collection of like ideas that you can, even if you don't have any particular use for them, something you can always go back to for inspiration. Any, any uh, upcoming work that people can look out for? Uh, I am not performing till January. So um, I have a show called Your Sex Are Shit, Older Better Letters, which is about um, how we communicate sex and desire. And that will be on in Soho Theatre in, in January. So a while off. And... Um... And um, I've got this script that I have to read now as an out outro. <laughs> oh, I didn't even read the full intro. Sorry, there's something that I had. You can do both now. Just squidge them I'll together. Just the outro now. Okay, so uh, thanks. Uh, well, I'll firstly say that it's been such a pleasure to talk to both of you. Um, so rich and... Um, what a morning, you know, it's really, really just, uh, it's, it's the morning that I didn't know that I needed, but yeah, it's uh, been incredible. Um, so yeah, so I just want to thank uh, Creative Youth and, um, and the International Youth Arts Festival. Um, so this is a part of the CPT program, Creative Talent Program, um, which aims to support emerging artists and companies um, with business development internships and support alongside um, some commissions for next projects, of which I'm a part of. Um, and um, there's other stuff, sorry. Okay, so thank you for all the panelists joining today. Oh, da, da, da. Okay, so <laughs> the International Youth Arts Festival is happening for the 12th. There are more events, please check it out. Um, and I will, I'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Um, take care of yourselves and um, yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Have a good morning. Bye. Bye, everyone.